0: Hi, I'm J.D. Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you can find us and you'll never miss an episode.
1: Six foot six above sea level. I grabbed the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. low no power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication
0: of our tribal. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to a public affair on WORT. My name is Juliana Shamitas, and I'm your host this week. I'm filling in for Ali Muldro. He'll be back next week. Less than two weeks ago, Hong Kong had its first authorized protest in three years. It was a really far cry from the big pro-democracy protest that swept Hong Kong back in 2019-2020 when millions of people took to the streets to demand freedom of speech, assembly, and universal suffrage. This time, the protest was carefully scripted. It was closely controlled by the police. There were about 80 demonstrators. They were wearing numbered lanyards. The protest lasted for only one hour, and in advance of the protest, Hong Kong's police told people what not to wear, what colors to avoid, because the colors yellow and black were uh, reminiscent of the 2019-2020 protests. The police also told protest organizers not to talk to the press unless they wanted the protest to be canceled, period. Today, we're going to be talking about Hong Kong which is not quite a country. It's a special administrative region of China. It's also a major financial center, one of the most developed cities in the world. And we're gonna be talking about how Hong Kong is one of many special administrative regions or zones which generate huge amounts of wealth and which are actively keeping democracy at bay. To help us through this history, we're joined by Quinn Slobodian. Quinn's new book is called Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. It came out last week in the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France and elsewhere, too. His previous award winning book, Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, was translated into seven languages. And Quinn writes frequently for The New York Times, The Guardian, The New Statesman. He's also Associate Director at Chatham House and the Marion Butler-McLean Professor of the History of Ideas at Wellesley College. He joins us today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Quinn. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Julian. It's nice to be here.
0: It's so great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. So, Quinn, let's start with those recent protests in Hong Kong. What do you make of those protests?
1: I mean, I think you described them well yourself, which is it's just a kind of a pantomime or a kind of extremely controlled um, caricature, really, of the kind of full forms of urban dissent and urban mobilization that we saw in 2019 and 2020. And it, rather than being kind of encouraging, I actually think it's quite depressing to see this happening because it shows exactly the kind of thing that the CCP, with their now much extended control over um, the enclave of Hong Kong, is understanding to be like acceptable protest. It was for the International Women's Day, which itself has been part of the sort of socialist public culture for many decades. And it suggests that you can, you know, stand around in groups and even kind of raise your fist as long as it's according to the official script, but not otherwise.
0: Yes. So... In thinking about Hong Kong in your book, one place that you start is in 1978 with a visit that Milton Friedman makes to Hong Kong. He's there to film the first episode of this PBS series, Free to Choose, which was a direct response to John Galbraith's uh, Age of Uncertainty, both a book and a TV series, where Galbraith is arguing that the free market is inefficient and a motor for social inequality. Friedman is there to make his rejoinder. Um, Tell us, why was Milton Friedman there? And why do you think he chose to film his first episode of Free to Choose in Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, this is kind of the question that started the book for me in a way. In fact, it, it tagged on to the book that you mentioned that I wrote previously called Globalists, which was about the kind of the end of empire, the emergence of independent nation states across Asia and Africa. And at the same time, the kind of the challenge of organized labor and social democracy to the world order in the 1960s and 1970s, more radical forms in the streets, less radical forms, but still challenging coming from organized labor. And in the 70s, people like Milton Friedman, who were devoted to economic freedom as the primary good inside of a social order, were really worried about this. They were worried about democracy in the unions, they're worried about democracy in the post-colonial world, and Friedman, fascinatingly, al- lit on the small island of Hong Kong in 1978 and sort of declared like that he had found a solution to these both of these problems, that all you needed to do was to take this very peculiar place, right? It was still a crown colony of Britain. Um, it didn't have representative democracy, the welfare state that had taken over the UK and, and Europe, never made it to the crown colony of Hong Kong. It looked like a strange little place that would soon be no more. And yet Friedman had this insight that perhaps you could use this strange anachronistic model and somehow make it transportable and make it something that would travel and could be kind of replicated. What you that you could, in the words of a libertarian magazine at the time, create two, three many Hong Kongs. So that idea sort of possessed me in a way because I felt like I needed to understand, first of all, how someone would think that could possibly work. And then in the course of the book, I kind of show examples where it did kind of work. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it didn't. It did. But in short, this idea of sort of multiplying Hong Kong ended up being um, have more legs than it would have appeared at first.
0: That's fascinating. and. Of course, the two, three, many Hong Kongs is also a direct um, quote and rejoinder. Do you want to say a little bit about that just for context for our listeners?
1: Sure. I mean, people might be familiar with this idea of creating two, three, many Vietnams that Che Guevara famous, famously announced sort of at the height of anti-colonial rebellion and, and global socialism. And this was a kind of counter global counter-revolution that they were proposing in the creation of two, three, many Hong Kongs in which in which economic freedom rather than socialist equality would be the end point.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. It's so, so interesting how, you know, Friedman is there to respond to Galbraith. And at the same time we get this phrase cropping up in the libertarian magazines. We see the kind of dialectics here at work. It's, it's really Mm -hmm. uh, powerful and interesting stuff. Now, as you mentioned, your previous work was on the end of empire and decolonization and I'm curious to to have you dig into some of the history of Hong Kong itself and how mm-hmm. French and British imperialism helped create Hong Kong out of decisions in the aftermath of, you know, the 19th century Second Opium War.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the origin of the crown colony of Hong Kong was um, in the Second Opium War, which the British fought with the Chinese to forcibly open their market to British imports and specifically to the import of Opium, hence the name. They seized this small rocky port that really didn't have much happening. It was more or less uh, a sort of a jagged, very mountainous rock with a very nice deep harbor, um, quite far from the center of events in, in China, so way down in the south along the coast. And 40 years later or so, they um, came to an arrangement where they leased a big swath of territory next to the island of Hong Kong, an area known as the New Territories. So most of what we call Hong Kong is not actually Hong Kong Island. It's kind of a, a more agrarian sort of flat area. And that was, the, that was taken um, under a 99 year lease. So in 1898, the, the, you know, the ink dried on the contract saying that this would not be a permanent possession of the British, that in 99 years, the negotiations re- would reopen and the status of Hong Kong would be revisited. So when Milton Friedman was standing there in Hong Kong in 1978, this really wasn't so far away, right? I mean, 1997 was less than 20 years from the time of, of him standing there. And people like him were really worried because the feeling was that the Chinese, the Communist Party would come in and kind of kill the goose that laid the golden eggs. Part of what you needed to do was to kind of get the rough draft of what Hong Kong was to smuggle out because it wasn't going to be long for this world or so they thought. The very interesting part and the part that really kind of really launched me on the project as I I puzzled over, over Milton Friedman's Hong Kong fixation was that as the Chinese met with Hong Kong business leaders and former British colonial officials to decide what the arrangement should be for the handover they discovered something that most people didn't expect which is that the communists and the hong kong business elite actually wanted the same thing so they both wanted bank secrecy they both wanted um guaranteed low taxes they wanted light touch regulation they wanted guaranteed free trade movement of capital over borders and neither of them were interested in the expansion of suffrage or the expansion of democracy or the expansion of um, the chances for ordinary Hong Kong people to express their opinions or their grievances to the government itself. So this came as a kind of a revelation to some of these intellectuals that I'm following. For example, a fellow named Alan Rabushka, who still is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, sort of said uh, to his to his amazement that China. Communist China had just created a constitution that was actually had more economic freedom in it than the United States Constitution itself (laughs) and thought that we should try to bring the Hong Kong model back to the United States. So that was a kind of origin moment of the, the firming up or the legalization of, you know, this idea you could have a miniature little jurisdiction that by, you know, getting its laws just right would become kind of catnip for global investors and would become a place that everyone would want to come and bring their money, use as a channel for their investment, use as a site for manufacturing. Um, So those ingredients, especially like a locked in low flat tax rate, it's only 15% in Hong Kong then and now locked in low corporate tax rate, a locked in balanced budget were all things that became kind of core components of the Hong Kong model which were then actually effectively exported. So in the intervening years, Germany, Austria, Italy, Poland have all created balanced budget amendments called a debt break in Germany. And across Eastern Europe, people literally were traveling with this book written by Alvin Rabushka about the flat tax to reform the internal tax systems of places like, you know, Latvia, Estonia, Czechia, along the model of kind of a Hong Kong style flat tax system. And that was rolled out in state after state in the 1990s. So I think this is, I mean, the intention of the book is to offer this kind of like shadow narrative to the one we're used to. The one we're used to, I think we get into sort of high school or even college textbooks is like, you know, there was a cold war, the United States and the Soviet Union had their client states that ended in 89, 90, 91. And then you move to a kind of unipolar era where there was just one world power, the United States. And that era inaugurated a kind of period of what we tend to call globalization, um, marked by sort of new arrangements, NAFTA, the EU, WTO. People's attention tends to look upward and upward imagining the world getting more and more knit together by these new novel um, legal arrangements. My point in the book was to say that you have to kind of look down or look underneath the surface of nations and look at often in different places. So maybe, you know, the center of Europe, even though that's where the Berlin Wall fell in 89, wasn't the most important place for the progress of global capitalism. Maybe the the importing of the Hong Kong model onto the coast of South China, places like Shenzhen and hundreds and hundreds of special economic zones to follow. Was actually pioneering kind of um, a new model of not liberal of uh, democracy and capitalism, you know, marching forward hand in hand at the end of history, but actually a very effective and even some people's might viable model of capitalism without democracy, not happening at a global level, but happening at this miniature level.
0: Great, thank you, Quinn. We'll pick up on that in a minute. But first, I wanted to say that if you're just joining us. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT. We're chatting with Quinn Slobodian about his new terrific book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Now, I want to bring us back right where you were talking, Quinn. So your book covers... A lot of ground, not least because there are today over 5,400 zones of the sort that you were just discussing that are free from ordinary forms of regulation and um, that, you know, as you just said, are catnip for global investors. I'm wondering if you could bring us to another one of these zones that you discuss in the book, which results from South Africa's attempt to hold on to apartheid
1: hmm. Right. Yes. This was also important for me to home in on not just because of um, I mean, actually, not just because of the fact that I was living in the region at the time. I was a child in Lesotho in a small independent country in the center of South Africa, completely surrounded by what was apartheid South Africa. So it has a, a kind of a personal resonance for me that I, I felt I was drawn to and wanted to work through, but also the iconic status of the Rainbow Nation reuniting under Nelson Mandela and the move to one person, one vote democracy is really one of the things that people would point to in the 90s as like a turning point when the era of overseas empire sort of finally ended on the African continent. And at least there was some convergence towards a broad idea of what a just form of government was, regardless of all of the the difficulties and the corruption that followed under the ANC and up to the present. What was so fascinating to me was like, as as historians do, kind of going back to the sources and saying like, well, what were people saying actually in the run-up to the sort of famous handover of power to Mandela? And what they were saying was in the United States and, and Europe was especially, um, they were really afraid of the possibility of an African National Congress or an ANC victory. They were afraid of Mandela winning. They thought that that would lead to socialism and communism expropriation of the the white population maybe even their you know in their in the most the most dystopian imaginings like the kind of massacre of the white population so it wasn't at all preordained that there would be sort of like a peaceful transition that would be accepted by major powers like the United States in fact the most popular proposal at the time in the 1990s in the sense that it was most discussed before Mandela's one person, one vote model, was the idea that you would actually break up the unitary nation of South Africa into many small cantons, was the language that was used at the time. And these cantons would be modeled a bit on the Bantustans, or the homelands that were created in the 70s and 80s, which were sort of fake nations that the apartheid state used to pretend to give self-determination to black populations, but actually just used as uh, holding pens for political prisoners and, and pools of reserved labor. So, as it turns out, um, there were some efforts at actually doing this, kind of cracking up the South African territory and making it into a model of kind of a nation of gated communities or private spaces, where consumers could move between them depending on their preferences and you know depending on what kind of government they liked. You could sort of shop between jurisdictions. This is a kind of central fantasy of the people I describe in my book, the sort of crack-up capitalists, have this idea that this is how society should work, is there should be basically a shopping mall of different forms of um, political space and that we can just kind of move through them as we like, which of course does exist in gated community-heavy places like the American Southwest or the Western or the Eastern Cape and South Africa now. But for me, it was important because it sort of, once again, like illustrated this alternative vision of global organization at the end of the Cold War. Like we weren't necessarily, you know, inevitably moving towards legacy nation states and their recognized borders with a kind of single world market within which they operated. A lot of people thought at the time, no, legacy nations are going to break up. Quebec's going to leave Canada. Scotland's going to leave the Union. Catalonia's going to leave Spain. Somalia is going to lose its state, which it did for the 1990s. So that, that, that era of the 90s often remembered and seen through kind of rose-tinted glasses, a period of kind of Coca-Cola globalization. It's actually a time of deep anxiety about whether or not nations would be able to hold their traditional borders. And the characters in my book rather than being worried about this, we're actually seeing this as sort of a possibility for new forms of political entrepreneurship.
0: Yes, so if you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WART. I'm talking with Quinn Slobodian about market fundamentalism and the dream of a world without democracy. If you have questions or something you'd like to say, please give us a call at 608-256-2001. So I'm especially interested in in, uh, the story of Siskai, which you get into in your book. This is um, this tiny place of about 3,000 square miles where, uh, you know, South Africa set it up in 1981, just as it was coming under a lot of flack. It was set up as an export processing zone or EPZ Um, This is a special type of free trade zone. Without getting too technical, could you maybe give us a sense of what an export processing zone is and what makes it so special?
1: Sure. So the first export processing zones were set up in a few different places. One was in... um, Puerto Rico or somewhere in Puerto Rico to try to attract investors there in the 1950s with low wages, you know, American dollar just offshore from the U.S. continent, and so on. Um, Another one was set up in in Taiwan in the 1960s and another one around Shannon Airport in Ireland, which had been previously a stopover when airplanes needed to refuel on their way from North America, but then was kind of left over. And The ideas of these places was that, you know, if you wanted to attract foreign investment, you needed to give them kind of goodies and sort of benefits and you needed to um, make it so that they didn't have to be accountable to local governments. They were often fenced off and sort of kept separate from the rest of the, the state. And this became the kind of template for how what we now think of as like the globalization of supply chains and value chains in the 1990s and 2000s so if you buy a t-shirt at walmart you know it may have passed through three or more of these export processing zones as it was made it could have gone to you know haiti to have the trim stitched onto it and then somewhere else to have the tag stitched onto it and somewhere else to be um, you know you know printed with some new pattern or whatever so the part of the point of the book is to kind of just give this vision of globalization is working through these subnational, um, smaller kind of concentrated areas. And there I just simply drew on the vast work of anthropologists and geographers and architectural uh, theorists, people who have been really on the trail of this stuff for, um, for decades. I could just sort of look at the work that they were doing about places like Singapore, Dubai, South Africa, China and try to put it all between two covers that was part of the intention. Great. But the idea with focusing on a place like Ciskeye, then, was to say that we should be very skeptical about a language of using zones to protect economic freedom, which is often the way that it's phrased. As I show in that chapter, which was also a Guardian long read, which you can read online, um, this supposedly freewheeling space of the zone which was used to bring in quite a number of investors from Taiwan and Israel and elsewhere, was actually not a freewheeling entrepreneurial space at all. Um, The the South African government was completely subsidizing the factories there. So it was actually more of just a direct handover of public funds to private hands. And they were using South African security forces to Um, imprison, torture and murder people who tried to organize the labor force, you know, to demand something other than absolute uh, bottom of the barrel minimum wages. So part of the point of the book, too, is to suggest that we need to be very skeptical of languages of libertarian freedom, which is supposedly a negative freedom that everyone just fends for themselves, because often it brings in kind of authoritarian power or it exists by virtue of kind of authoritarian or unaccountable power um, by design.
0: Yes, absolutely. So Quinn, you mentioned that you spent some of your childhood in Lesotho, which is this landlocked country inside of South Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about how your experiences as a child there shaped your understanding of apartheid and also the relationship between kind of real independent sovereignty and these forms of fake sovereignty that you track in the book?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think at first sort of by chance and then later kind of by intention, I ended up, in, I've ended up in my life, or in my young life anyway, in a lot of these peculiar sort of jurisdictions. So my first uh, school, kindergarten, was on an island, off of an island off the west coast of Canada, and it was an Indigenous reserve, it was a First Nations reserve. Um, and this small island was divided between a native side on one side and the white side on the other, as people called it, even though there was not only white people there. Um, so the, already there's like a tiny island and it's got two legal spaces. You know, One is governed, you know, self-governed to a certain extent by the indigenous community. The other one is part of the province of British Columbia. We moved from there to this peculiar little country leftover of the British empire in the middle of South Africa um, which had a different legal system, but was completely reliant on foreign aid and was a kind of a laboratory for international development in the 1980s. From there, a few years later, we ended up in Vanuatu, which is a small Pacific nation which had only become independent from colonial rule in the early 1980s um, and had become then also kind of a plaything of different um, powers trying to seek its favor and. United Nations General Assembly votes. It was also very active as a tax haven, as a kind of a spot on the map through which large amounts of money could move or be or be hidden. Um, later on, in my life, like cities I was attracted to were Berlin and Montreal, places that existed partially as affordable places for young people because they almost were torn out of the nation that they were part of. So the idea that sovereignty was kind of provisional and sort of you know, capable of being sometimes bought or bartered away or lost through conquest, in the case of the Indigenous community in Western Canada,
0: was just something that always seemed
1: very normal to me. Like a, the idea of a kind of uh, a stable and steady, eternal country or something that just never resonated for me personally. Um, So it's, it's not, so I think that just kind of sensitized me as a kind of observer because through places I was mostly passing through, I wasn't myself subjected to displacement or anything that would make these things much more intimate, but just as a kind of observer, it was just like, oh yeah, like the map is just, it's not permanent. It's not forever. These lines are being redrawn all the time. And if you are like the people in my book, it's kind of devoted to a certain vision of replacing all forms of social life with contract and commercial exchange and commodification, you know, you can see how you could sort of ride that trend, which is ever more the way that we do live our everyday lives, towards a total reconfiguration of idea of government altogether. So there was something, you know, that I wanted to do with the book, which is to kind of travel with people to the extreme ends of their own ideologies. So, you know, if you want to get rid of states altogether, as some people who I'm reading about do, and create sort of stateless societies governed only by arbitration agencies and insurance arrangements, then you know what do you think that's going to look like? And 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 why do you feel so excited by something like a gated community in the Arizona? A <laughs> cactus desert. Um, <laughs> there's something just that so almost anthropologically, I felt the need to kind of get in the heads of these people.
0: Yes, yes, um, and you did a beautiful job of that. And actually, I would love to hear you walking around inside of their heads right now because your <laughs> book is also a history of ideas, which really helps us understand. How we get from a Milton Friedman, for instance, to a very extreme form of libertarianism, which is interested in dismantling the nation state altogether. And I think, as you show really convincingly, that's a positive ideology as well, or at least that is an ideology as well. Mm -hmm. So walk us through it. You know, maybe remind us what Milton Friedman was all about as you see him. Mm -hmm. And then how did we get to this form of market fundamentalism that you track in your book?
1: Sure. I mean, Milton Friedman, you know, who's often set up as kind of like the most radical possible libertarian or neoliberal thinker, was actually, you know, pretty conventional in some ways. I mean, in the sense that, He actually didn't want to do away with governments or do away with the state, even though that's sometimes imputed to him. He thought that governments should do some things and not others. He actually even thought that, like Hayek, thought they should have some role in maybe regulating pollution and providing kind of a basic um, safety net for the poorest and so on. Um, So there's a way that the people we often concentrate on, like Hayek and Milton Friedman, uh, are only the kind of tip of the iceberg when it comes to people who are committed to turning capitalism into a kind of all-embracing ideology. And they are also kind of creatures of the mid-century, the mid-20th century. This is something I've been sort of reflecting on after having written the book, which is the idea that, you know, in the 20th century and 19th too, there was often this argument about modernization, like everyone in the world was kind of on the same timeline. You know, some people were further along, some people were further back in the minds of political scientists in the United States, the US was at the very forefront, other countries and regions were lagging, but you know, given the right conditions and foreign aid, whatever they would catch up. And in some ways, I think that's still the world that like a Hayek or a Friedman lives in. But by the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, I feel like that idea has been really abandoned, at least by the people I write about in my book. So, whether it's under a feeling that the problems of democracy can just like never be solved, you can never come up with a kind of a good enough cage for democracies, for capitalism to survive, or you're in some roundabout way taking on, on board you know, the challenges of, of a world of limited resources, or at least you're if you're a kind of a right-wing libertarian, you're very worried that other people have become so serious about, let's say, environmentalism that they're going to start you know, constraining your own freedom in all kinds of ways, that that the new communism is red, as many of them put it, after the end of the Cold War. Then you start to say, like, you know what, we're not on the same timeline. Like, the world is never going to all march towards some kind of shared vision of convergence and progress. In fact, let's just opt out and get out while we can. And a very strong metaphor there that that captures a lot of this, I think, is the environmental philosopher Garrett Hardin's idea of the lifeboat so he had this he's well known for the tragedy of the commons essay but he has a equally you know intense one called lifeboat ethics in which he argues that if you're on a lifeboat with a certain number of people and too many people try to get on and they're going to swamp the boat then it is ethical to you know beat them off with the and and force them to drown and that attitude of kind of zero-sum social order is, I think, more and more dominant into the 21st century. And that's really what I found kind of again and again with the people I was writing about, who include Milton Friedman's son, David Friedman, and his grandson, Patry Friedman, who rather than saying, you know, how can we turn the giant ship of the United States around so that it, you know, marginally favors economic liberties over social justice? Are just like, no, let's just leave this country altogether. Like, we need to create new spaces. We need to, in the case of Patri Friedman, you know, set up an offshore platform, um, you know, off the coast of California and start, um, you know, dealing in stocks and bonds and, you know, doing kind of experimental medical procedures or whatever from out there. So, that idea of exit um, rather than voice is really the through line in the book. And I think it captures something about the, the way that a lot of politics is trending is this sort of faltering belief in the idea that the collective action is salvageable and something that can be, you know, ever reflective of enough people's personal values to be viable. And kind of a sneaking feeling of like, maybe we just need to opt out and secede. Like, it's well known that that um, support for the idea of secession in the United States is at all time highs with concentration in two places, right? Like blue, blue States on the coast and red States in the middle of the country. So there's a kind of a mutual alienation that I think these, these um, crack up capitalists kind of channel in a certain way. And that channeling is sort of saying, you know, we're not in the same timeline anymore. Like we're, most of us aren't going to make it. Let's just make sure we're in the lifeboat, like when things really go down.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's worrisome stuff. Um, if you're joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT. We're chatting with Quinn Slobodian about his fantastic new book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. So, Quinn, thanks for walking us through the path from Milton Friedman to some of our more uh, current-day libertarian thinkers on the right. I'd like to ask you to talk about some of the libertarians in your story who become far-right racists. On First Mm -hmm. Blush, this seems surprising because forms of ethno-nationalism seem to be committed to borders and to nations. And these are individuals Mm -hmm. who want to poke holes in the nation state and maybe even Mm -hmm. unmake it. So can you tell us about them and their vision of the world?
1: Sure. So this is, I think, one of, I guess, the most common misconceptions I think about libertarianism is that that, you know, if you don't believe in the state, then that must mean that you believe in, like, the, no, the, then you must not believe in any rules at all, right? But in fact, this, it's a very important sort of thought experiment or something. If you say, like, well, if you're not going to have, you're not just going to use the regular, like, representative government, then what are you going to use? You know, what will stand in its place? And, of course, you can just say, well, it'll all be governed the same way you sign, you know, terms and conditions when you enter a... rv park or or a motel or a um, gated community and many of them thought that way. But the other thing you could say is that what if you could have forms of trust that were not kind of codified and legalized? How would you do that? And many of the people i write read about come to this conclusion that well, one way you can have kind of non codified forms of trust is that people see each other as somehow part of the same community. And so that, like, ethnic homogeneity and racial homogeneity is a great kind of bond between individuals uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't necessarily require um, mediation through, like, a government of any sort. You You can feel bonded horizontally to people in their mind, even without, you know, having a common representative or a common sovereign. And this is where the, the kind of imagination gets pretty far out there. So I said this thing about the timeline not running one way. Well, sometimes the timeline kind of like loops way back to the past, too. So one of the things that's quite inspiring to a lot of the people in my book is the Middle Ages, um, the sort of the supposed spirit of kind of self-organization that the barbarian Goths brought out of the German forests to the British Isles and, you know, managed to withstand the centralizing Roman formality of the Norman conquerors, and then, you know, even bring with them over on the Mayflower to the United States with this idea that there's a kind of Saxon gene that um, that is premised partially on, like, shared ethnicity, and then also, like, self-government or self-organization. So quite literally, people do make reference to these kind of seemingly absurd analogies or distant kind of heritages that they are claiming they want to tap back into in that sense there's an affinity with like traditionalism and these other forms of white supremacy especially but they also just see it as a kind of a practical pragmatic transitional step so murray rothbard is one of the people who i spent a lot of time writing about in the book and he was fascinating figure because he's, he is a hardcore libertarian, but he's always just interested in figuring out like, you know, what social forces are afoot right now that might get us to the full breakdown of state order quickest. <laughs> um And he's pretty, you know, Catholic in his, in his approach to that question. So in the 1960s, he was like, you know what I like? I like black power. I like black power because There is this vision of like black self-determination, black self-government, and maybe even like a territorial secession from the United States. Um, He didn't like it. He specifically didn't like it because he thought that it was going to lead to more, you know, social justice or egalitarianism. He thought that it would just speed up the crack up. So flash forward 30 years after the 60s, and um, he's really into the neo-Confederates in the American South. Why? Not because he was too much of a believer in a lot of the nonsense like self-ethnology they did um, to try to describe themselves as a single um, homogeneous race, but mostly because he was just like, hmm, how can we, you know, in most expeditious way, just like really get this fragmentation thing happening. So part of the attraction to, you know, straight up scientific racism is like sort of tactical partnerships and alliances. This is how a lot of um libertarians ended up in the alt-right in the you know mid twenty tens. And then some of it is, yeah, this this sort of twisted version of of sociology, which suggests that that a stateless society operates best if you have only one race. Yep.
0: So if you're joining us, and chatting with Quinn Slobodian about capitalism and market fundamentalism. If you have questions, please give us a call. The number is 608-256-2001. So I wanted to um, build on what you were just saying, Quinn, about you know the role of some of these libertarians within far-right movements to this day. Can you maybe tell us what you think about the importance of them being within these movements? You know, is it just kind of a curious fact that they're there, but ultimately they're not having a big role in shaping the priorities of these movements? Or do you think um, their presence is really significant?
1: Yeah, good question. I mean, so there has been a fair amount written about this so-called libertarian to alt-right pipeline. and One can approach it, I think, in two ways. You can either sort of figure out the individual personalities and, you know, name names and figure out their publications and their what they call their little micro groupings and whatever. And, you know, I think that's important work. And a lot of people who do the kind of, um, you know, like the Southern Poverty Law Law Center is very good at kind of just cataloging all of these um, strange marginal groups. But I think the reason why I was drawn to this topic for research a few years ago, especially around Charlottesville, which is really when I started writing a lot of this in 2017, um, is that I think that falsely, uh, especially at the time, we often discussed the far right or the alt-right as simply a kind of a cultural phenomenon or something that was happening at the level of identity politics, which was somehow seemed to be treated as separate from economic matters or let alone the kind of the ways that capitalism works, and what I found interesting about these libertarians who were, you know, devotees of economic freedom becoming involved is this like how did <laughs> how does that happen? Like they seem to be drawn to it because they think that somehow this peculiar cultural formation will like help move them towards better capitalism. And the more you, th- the more I thought about it, the more it started to make sense. Which is that I think that the you know that the energies that we have developed within capitalist kind of um, employment practices and kind of the access to services in the last 15 years or so has been one that sort of works against uh, forms of collective action so the dissolution of labor unions as something that you're either part of or that you even have a legal right to create within your own workplace um, is something that is less and less a reality for Americans compared to 50 years ago. And the idea of, of sort of dropping out in everyday life or performing what is often called by people in my book, soft secession, um, through things like, you know, not just creating a social media silo that you exist inside, but you know, homeschooling your children choosing the site of of residents based on like low taxes you know seceding from an inner city for example as they've done in atlanta and elsewhere so they don't have to pay taxes into public education for poor communities there are a lot of these practices that were to me very much part of capitalism and economic rationality and kind of a deepening devotion to um, you know maximizing profit and minimizing redistribution that also seemed to me to be at the heart of what we were calling the alt-right or the far-right. Like these people weren't trying to like unwind capitalism in many cases. They were actually trying to drive it harder and farther into the future. So this fusion of sort of ultra-capitalists with scientific racists was actually more symptomatic of something happening um, within our economic culture or at least as much as it was something that was just happening in some supposedly separated realm of the cultural. Um, And that's something I've been just still trying to, I think, puzzle out in the intervening years. And perhaps it's not as central in the book as I had thought it was going to be when I started writing this book. Um, But I do think that when when we realize, for example, that the kind of poster child of global capitalism since the 1990s has been a place like, you know, Dubai, um, which is like, (laughs) you know, an authoritarian micro state with like a strictly ethnically genetically defined citizenry um, dependent on, you know, a huge majority of its residents being kind of hire and fire and deport migrant laborers. And this is the model that people in, you know, post-Brexit UK are looking for to say, how can we do that here at home? Like, you know, Emirates is on the jerseys, Qatar is buying up the newest buildings in the center of London. It looks like they're really doing something right. And they're partially doing it by combining like this logic of like ethnic purity and welfare chauvinism with, you know, hyper capitalism and willingness to capitalize on any new market niche that arises.
0: Right. Yes. Uh, If you're joining us, we're chatting with Quinn Slobodian about libertarianism, capitalism, and the dream of a world without democracy. You can ask questions by phoning in at 608-256-2001. Quinn, I have a question about how these models travel. So you begin the book with the model of Hong Kong, and we started our conversation with that today and how that model traveled including to um, mainland China in order to help transform um, China itself. How do you see agency operating here? Give us a sense of whether the there are individuals, lobbies that you're tracking that are pushing for the popularization of these models or whether you see the causal story as a different one?
1: Yeah, I think it kind of depends from case to case. But one thing that does come out here and there in the book is this: is the creation of kind of new ways of measuring economic freedom that are used to kind of enshrine the Hong Kong model, let's say, as being a superior one. And specifically, I'm thinking here of is so-called indexes of economic freedom, which the Fraser Institute, which is a, a um, think tank in Vancouver, took up and was later taken up by the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation as well. And so what they wanted to do was say like, to sort of answer the question that you're asking, which is like, how do we make this model move? Like, how do we make other places admire Hong Kong and then also try to model themselves on Hong Kong? So they created a kind of, Um, a way of measuring the superiority of a of a of a territory not even a nation a territory based on things like you know low taxes bank secrecy ease of opening businesses low regulations and so on and then create these kind of league tables and since they've launched their first one in the mid 90s it's been number one and two has been singapore the entire time and they meant this self-consciously as a way to counter things like the Freedom House rankings which had always put a rather high heavy weight on democracy as a way to measure what freedom was And these indexes have been really popular and successful um, they've they've been used by political scientists in all kinds of ways even though their their scientific quality is very very questionable and they're often used by um, developing countries as a way to kind of, retrofit or redesign their own policies in a way to make themselves attractive to other countries. So you really saw this in post-socialist Eastern Europe. Some political scientists have written about that era there as that avant-garde neoliberalism, where, you know, small places were going well beyond what the European Union expected and well beyond what the World Bank wanted to kind of try to make themselves into these perfect kind of vessels. So I think for emerging markets, the pressure is very strong to kind of try to make yourself into a mini Hong Kong and a mini Singapore, often by prioritizing, you know, the things that produce economic freedom rather than, say, social spending or research and development that places like Singapore also profit from. The So, there yeah, the sort of think tank networks that propagate these ideas are quite important. And we, there was a stark example of this during the pandemic. So Stephen Moore is one of these fellows who has been part of this um, propagation of these indexes of economic freedom. And he also helped create a kind of ranking of states in India and then also states in the United States. So he was a close advisor of Donald Trump and, and, you know, the height of the pandemic when people were um, open reopening economies at sort of differential rates, depending on democratic or Republican control, he was out there saying, you know, we're gonna see people moving to red states because they have more economic freedom and taking investment out of blue states. And part of that, you did see places like Tesla moving to Texas and um, Peter Thiel, not for nothing relocates to Florida along with a lot of other tech and crypto firms. So that so-called competitive federalism is something that exists in sort of policy circles. It's often sort of given a template or a form by think tanks in these things like indexes and benchmarks and then taken up by politicians who then create, you know, big time incentives and subsidies, which give the impression of the free market at work, but are actually just new ways to sort of hand over public wealth to private interests.
0: Yes, thanks, Quinn. So I'm going to bring us back to the question of resistance that we started with the massive Hong Kong protests of 2019, 2020. And I think the question for me becomes, you know, reading your book, which really gives us a whole new perspective on the 20th and 21st century, how to think about power, how to think about geography. Huge question for you to close us out. But what strategies of resistance do you feel are available, given what you know now?
1: Well, I think you can go in one of two directions. one is to sort of say, you know, these are these zones are creating kind of perforations and punch holes in sovereign nation states. And so therefore, we just need to kind of re-strengthen the nation state. And, you know, I think something like the election of Biden, although I, I like many people, wasn't that confident in his uh, status as a transformative president, has ended up, you know, showing what a powerful state can do to like help move us towards energy transition goals and so on. Um, with all shortcomings. So that is one thing to do. Is just like, if people are trying to evade and, and disempower democracy, like reinforce democracy. It's actually not a terrible system, you know, compared to the other ones, as they say. The other thing, though, is to sort of follow the lead of some of these libertarians, which is to say, you know, maybe there is something to scaling down and doing sort of small scale experiments that could then be emulated and attractive to people across different spaces. Like, I'm not against the idea of you know, community land trusts and kind of proper versions of um, the skill-sharing workshops at a local level. And I think there's all kinds of ways that we can decommodify neighborhoods more quickly than we can decommodify a state, let alone the global economy. So I think that more than anything, the goal of my book was just to kind of remind us that we live and operate and capitalism operates within multiple scales. It's not just like, the nation or the globe, as we sometimes get in the caricature of the kind of editorials of the of the newspapers. You know, we were in an era of globalization, and now we're back in an era of the nation. In fact, we're always living in spaces beneath the la- the nation. Those places can be sites for, I think, positive experimentation as well as sort of negative um, laboratories.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Quinn, for joining us. Um, thank you to Ashley, our engineer. Thanks to Jade, our producer. Thanks to Steve, our receptionist. And thanks again, Quinn Slavodian. It's been wonderful to chat.
1: Yes, it was great to be here. Thanks, Juliana. the sound communication tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime, treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions.